Our guest today is a living legend in the sport of cycling and has been associated with some of the best teams in the world. Riders often tell me that he is their favorite DS of all time. Today we sit down with the one and only Brian Holm to talk about the past, present, and future in his world. All right, Brian Holm, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Ah, wonderful to see you and hear you. A pleasure. Well, you know, first of all, belated happy birthday. You recently turned 60, which is a, a milestone that uh, Jens and I are, are striving for. How did you celebrate your, your 60th birthday? Do anything fun? Uh, actually, yes. I mean, the morning, like I suppose, like most birthdays, you know, my family was coming, my mother at least, uh, my wife, my kids, the dog, you know, and uh, eating breakfast together. And uh, then I went for a ride. Luckily, it was on a Sunday. I went on a ride with some friends, uh, 90 kilometers. And uh, then I went to work in Eurosport. And uh, my, my parents was coming in the evening. Wednesday, I had sort of res reception at the city council. And... Uh, there was a lot of people. I mean, you realize when you're 60 years old, you know a lot of people. So uh, it went for like three, four hours. Then we continued to a small bar, and uh, I, was, I was very tired the day after. So not too much drinking then. You had to stay fit for the next day to walk the dog the next morning? Yeah, sort of, you know, how it going. So I told my wife already, you know, uh, the day after, I wouldn't be up at 6 o'clock. Trust me, but uh, still I was out for a ride, and uh, no, it was, was, was good even the day after, and as uh, you maybe know, I have a cycling team, a uh, country team with Mas Peterson also, uh, called Restaurant Souris, Carl Ras. so even the day after we had like sort of uh, a team dinner with the team, so uh, we, we're busy, we're busy. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that a little bit later, but um you know, trying to start at the beginning, I remember, you know, my first memory of you was when you were on Team Kele Telecom back in the day, which was, you know, pretty intimidating. You had a lot of strong guys on that team. And as a neo-pro over in Europe on an American team, Motorola, um, it was it was a little nerve-wracking even getting close to you guys in the Peloton. But, you know, cycling back then you know, what, when you started, wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. So I'm, I'm interested to hear about your influence or influencer that got you into the sport of cycling in the first place. Actually, I started cycling back in 1971. That's quite a few years ago. So uh, I suppose I was quite small for my age. I was probably not very talented. And, uh, I rode seven, eight years without having a single prize. Thanks to that, I was a reasonable good boxer. I did athletic, you know, so in the seventies, you did a bit of everything, you know. My, my mother just wanted me to do some sport. I had to do some sport, whatever. But back in uh, 79, my old coach, Leif Mortensen, he became my coach. Uh, he was former world champion from uh, 1969, he beat Jean-Pierre Monseret. And uh, he asked me about my training programs. And I didn't really have a program, you know, but just did some, you know, athletic boxing. And he said, why don't you start to train? I said, okay, let's try. So I started a bit of training and then I was national junior champion, champion of Denmark. And, uh, and suddenly I was starting to make some reasonable results. And uh, getting up to i was educated as a bricklayer and i can tell you when you have been bricklayer in denmark in the late 70s in the 80s that's hard i mean that's probably harder than being professional cyclist because you get up every every day like 4 30. you get to work you know you work at construction you know it's like seven eight hours a day then you train after you work like 120 kilometers so uh i did the olympic in on the track 84 Los Angeles, we were beaten by 3,600 of a second, beaten by the bloody Americans. You know, Steve Hagen, those guys on the track. In the, but they, then I had an offer turning a 
professional on the road. I was number four at the World Championship. 85, Barzano del Graba, Piaseski he won, and uh, I was chased down the last 100, kilo, uh, 100 meter and became fourth and quite disappointing. Then I had an offer in December 85 to turn professional. And to be honest, I flew down to Belgium. Those days you wouldn't have an agent or manager or anything. I just flew down, they called me and uh, me flying down, sort of conversation. I spoke very little French. I understood a little bit. I had a meeting with two Belgium guys, uh, Guillaume Driesens and uh, Florent van Warnberg, who had that team called Safir van de Ven, with Hermann van Sprengel, Hermann Frisson. And uh, I mean, I didn't have a clue really what I was talking about. I mean, there was a bit of French, some Flemish, it could have been Chinese, you know. And uh, my trainer said, don't sign anything, don't sign anything. No, 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 I wouldn't sign that. I'm not stupid. <laughs> so sitting down there in Sarventem in Brussels, you know, the airport, and uh, uh, I didn't know really what they were saying. They pulled up a contract, you know, I, I still have it. And uh, and I could see, you know, quite a big number. It said like uh, 350,000 franc. And I thought, that's big money, yeah. I mean, those days as bricklayer when I was younger, I made like, honestly, when I was younger, uh, two euros an hour. So suddenly I see the number 350,000 francs. I said, holy fuck, that, that's a lot of money. I better sign it, you know, like, uh, you sign it. Getting back in the airplane, going back to Copenhagen, my trainer picked me up. He said, you didn't sign it. I, I signed it. So we looked, you know, life he could speak also a little bit of Flemish, you know, you're right, you 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 signed for three years and uh, it's not French Frank, you know, it's Belgian Frank. So we signed for I signed for three three years for like ten thousand euros a year. And he said, Brian, you're so fucking stupid. Why did you sign it? And I said, okay. I could see there was not a lot of money and uh, that I called, you know, like Bjarne Ries and Skibi and luckily they signed the same silly contract and then we went to Belgium on the on the on the big adventure and then everything started. So um, back then talking about adventure um for our modern day listeners, the the airplane tickets they would get to you by letter, right? We didn't have e tickets back then or effects machines were the way to communicate back then, right? No, you're starting to be close because those days you cannot believe it, but a ticket was quite expensive those days. Everything would happen by car. When you turn professional, you always went by car all across Europe. When I went normally, when I did something, I always went by car. You did like 1,000, 2,000 kilometers and back again. So when I went down for the meeting uh, in December 85, they paid my ticket, you know, and that was big amount of money those days to fly to Belgium and uh, I was quite flattered they would pay for me so so next to that we signed but I have to stay in Belgium and those days when you sign a contract in Belgium I stayed in Belgium the whole year it's not that like you say ah oh, now need a break from the cameras races or with the sort of France whatever you wouldn't have a break you would do like and it doesn't really exaggerate I would do like 130 140 races every year you know you would do the, all the classic, the day after Amstel, you would go to Welser. The day after you, you, uh, you had Welser, and then you would do like the Kermes races, you know. So you always was racing, racing, racing. And you had to do it because uh, in the Kermes races in Belgium, you could make some, some pocket money to survive. Because you would always go to a race, and was always prize money for the first 30 riders, as far as I remember, number 30, he would have like a thousand Belgian francs, would be probably 30 euros. But when you went to a race, you would go for money for the gasoline and for the dinner at night. So you would never ever go back from a race without no money because always, you know, the beans you could buy, you could sell races, you know. It was a little bit complicated. You, you have to learn the system in the Belgian Kermis races. But when you learned it, I mean, you could make a bit of pocket money to go there. But uh, the first year, of course, I went down. My family went 
down to see me and I realized when well, I have to do a race in Belgium, I probably have to pay the dinner. So we did in Villevarde, you know Villevarde, when you've been in Southern Temple City under where Sean Kelly used to live. That was my first a big race in May I have to do and my family went down there and uh, I believe like 25 riders in the breakaway. So we had honestly probably 175 riders sprinting like it was a bloody Champs-Élysées to have the thousand Belgian franc, like 30 euros to pay for the gasoline, to, to, to just to have some pocket money uh, in your pocket. So what happened was I, I crashed and I smashed my skull twice. Uh, my family was waiting. I didn't arrive at the finish line. Uh, uh, after a while waiting, the sports director came. They said, yeah, Brian, he crashed, you know, but he's in the hospital. So they drove my mother to the hospital. And then when she arrived, I was in the chapel, you know, with the priest giving me the last oil because I said, he's going to die. And my mother told today, she still said, that was the night she had gray hair. So I was in a coma for three days and suddenly, I don't know what, I waked up from the coma and uh, I was laying there for five, five weeks in the hospital about to leave and the uh, next problem was I didn't have any insurance. And then I have a bill like, like 20,000 euros. I mean, twice my year's salary I have to pay for the hospital and uh, I, my mother, she started to cry, you know, like, and I didn't have the money. And uh, I was calling the team from the telephone on the wall, you know, we paid with the coins. And uh, Fick Kersmarker, the owner of the team, was coming. And uh, uh, the sports director, Florent van Weinberg, and the sort of negotiation, I suppose, and said, we pay for you, but you have to sign another three years, and then you can pay us back the next three years. So, uh, well, <laughs> I had my time in Belgium. Wow. Wow, almost sounds like prison sentence. That was a hard start. Wow. I mean, my, my question, my next question would have been, you know, what is the difference between racing in the 80s and 90s compared to now? But I think you basically answered that question. Um, so you you had that crash, you hit your head. Did you... I think I know the answer to this question. Um, did you continue or did you start wearing a helmet after that? Because that was my real main revelation when I came to, to Europe was that no one wore helmets. I mean, when you have a crash like that, you know, that's everything we like about young riders. Because when you have a crash like that, you really think that's not going to happen twice. I had some bad luck, but I cannot be so unlucky two times in my life. So it's actually make you feel more superior, you know. I mean, when you start to wear a helmet, for most riders of my generation, it's probably when you turn around 30 years old, when you have kids, when you have a wife, you know, when you have something to come back to, then you think about, okay, the little boy home, maybe I take care of my head, you know, but then, you know, also, I mean, when you're young, like most riders, you know, you have some family, you know, you maybe, Toss the brakes a little bit before. You know, in Belgium, they say the perfect rider, the perfect professional cyclist, he will stay home with his mom till he's 36. And then he can marry, and then he can have kids. Because until that, you really have to be a bit crazier to be a pro cyclist. So, Brian, if you remember, what do you think is the difference in the kilometers you did back then, like in whatever, in your years in Belgium? Did you do more or less kilometers all through the year, racing and training together? Or you did more kilometers later in your career when you had bigger teams or better teams? Uh, I suppose, in general, for, for race day, went less and less. What I think is good. It's very good because then you had some recovery, of course, because those days you wouldn't really have a program. You would just race and race and race, and you wouldn't have a clue when you hit the big, good shape. So you're just racing, and some, day, some shape is going up and down, so we never really try to, to to plan anything at all. Uh, my generation, we probably trained a lot of kilometers. You, would, I grew up with when your wife or your girlfriend go to work, you live with her and then you train seven, eight, nine hours a day and coming back with her again. And then you can eat, you do massage, 
you have a nap, you sleep, and then you repeat it again, day after day, day after day, or he was racing, of course. But I guess what they're doing today is, of course, better. I've no doubt they're going faster today, but I still believe to be a good cyclist, if we talk about 1950, 60, 70, 80, 90, zeros or today, I really believe to be a good cyclist, it would be the same qualities. I mean, you still have the same stress. It's the same things you go downhill, 80 k's an hour on rubber. It's the same when you sit in the bunch sprint, if you have the echelon. It's the same pain when you break your collarbone, whatever happened. So really, cycling is, is changing for the better, much better, no doubt, because they're going faster. But the qualities would always be the same. When you go to a training camp on the altitude, you have to live like a monk. You, pre you prepare yourself uh, in the evening for the day after. You clean your bike, you prepare your intervals, your kilometers, and like you would say, like, I remember Eddie Merckx, he once said, for a good professional, the weather doesn't exist. Because you're so focused when you start training, so don't really give a fuck if it's raining, because mentally, you're ready for the training. It's the same when you get into a bond sprint, you concentrate, you concentrate, you concentrate. If you lose your concentration, you're going to toss your brakes. That's cycling, and I think that was cycling like in the 50s, 60s, and today. You really need a strong head to be a professional cyclist. Gosh, that's a great point. I never really looked at it like that because when I had pictures of your generation on the wall, and I was not a classics guy, but like it just, you guys looked harder, you looked meaner, you looked tougher. But I think you have a really good point there that you still have to have those basic skills, that, that skill to be able to put all that suffering, the bad weather, the, the wind, the uphill, the pave off to the side and, and just get the job done. Um, because the photos make it look like it was so much harder, but like doing the same races over a lot of the same parkours, it just, you know, fancier bikes and fancier clothing. And of course, everyone has helmets on now. But uh, I like that. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, I think, but I mean, we have to be honest, you look better without a helmet. I mean, I mean, with a helmet, it makes you make, look like a sort of a hairdresser, doesn't it? But, but, but my generation also, to, to be honest, we was much slower. Who we would go like, if the stage was like 200 kilometers, you would go easy for like 150. Then you see like the job and there, you know, the television is starting. A little bit of action, you know. I remember the early years when we did, for example, uh, Tour of Holland was raining, was a bridge. So everybody stopped under the bridge. Nobody wants to be wet. So basically, we stopped in professional cycling race under the bridge because it was raining, like like uh, 180 guys standing on, you know. And uh, so the organizer went so pissed. So uh, they realized if you, next time you go, lower than 25 kilometers average, we take your price money. So like, <laughs> so, so uh, we went slower and of course, you know, black and white photos <laughs> with no helmets on, maybe it's a little tougher, but uh, as I, uh, honestly, I think they'd be tougher today because they are going faster. You, you saw Ghana the other day, almost 70, uh, 57 k's an hour. But how did that work? Because we, in this day and age, it seems like no one can agree on anything. Everyone's trying to flick each other, even though they all understand that, hey, we shouldn't race hard right now. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too slippery. It's too dangerous. But what was it that allowed back then you guys to all agree? Was it like one patron of the Peloton or were you guys just a little bit more looking out for each other, I guess. It's a very good question. Actually, it's a very, very good question because uh, I just think it's a new generation coming. Yeah? I mean, probably even your generation. I suppose you would come to a hotel room, you would go down, see the mechanic, can I fix my bike, blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, the riders go to the room, they sit with the telephone, they sit with the iPad, they doesn't see each other. They never go see, they send a text. If they need something from the mechanic, they text him, WhatsApp, whatever they're doing, you know. 
So everybody is getting more, much more individual what, what they're doing. Uh, I see the Danish guy around Copenhagen. We have maybe 15 professionals, but they never train together. I mean, I can pass them. Maybe it's just, wouldn't say anything. So I think people is just getting much more individual. And uh, in my day, of course, you have like big names like uh, Bernardino. You probably have Sean Kelly. Uh, you would have like somebody like Lance Armstrong coming up. You know, and if somebody was getting too excited, you know, wanted to attack, you know, somebody would go after him and say, hey, slow down, slow down. I remember, I think I can say it, you know, I think, I think, I think it was to the Italia, or to the Swiss. We had some uh, Colombians uh, from the Barca team and uh, somebody attacked quite early on the stage. So he really attacked too early because nobody would attack like the first 100 kilometer for sure. So remember there was Italian called Alessio De Basco? He was something. So he went after him. He took his foot out of the pedal and just kicked his handlebar of the poor Colombian. The Colombian, he crashed, you know, laying down, you know, in the gutter. And then the whole peloton was coming singing, you know, shame or shame or like donkey, donkey, donkey. So never attacked, you know, in the start. And everybody was laughing, so so like. Nobody would attack in the start. We, we did the final because you thought, like, well, well we had the same money. Somebody going to win. So why be hurt for longer than necessary? So trust me, that was another system. Was it good? I'm not too sure about it. So now you were talking all, a lot about the, the old system and all that. And you have been a bike rider, a sport director for many, many years. Now, with your experience, where would you place us three in today's peloton? Let's go. We at our best physical shape. Where would you place us three, Bobby, yourself, and me? Would we fit in today or would we just filling up the field and getting our asses kicked? I, 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 I will stick to what we would... I, I think we could fit in because we could fit in in the 50s and we probably because we realized to becoming professional, it's, you always have to need sort of a social mindset, you know. When I was with Telecom in the early 90s, I mean, like you, you know, Sable, you know, to be ha have him as a teammate, he was not always a stand-up comedian. You know, Ulrich, Jens Hebner, you think that was that funny? No, <laughs> you know, but but you adapt to the system, you know. I spoke a bit of German because we have uh, German and Danish school, you know, so you sort of adapt to it and you, and, and you become part of the team and you enjoy it. So... Honestly, I think us we would fit in in every age of cycling because I don't think it's really rocket science, and uh, I mean they make much more money today and they deserve it for sure. Professional cyclists they cannot make too much money because it's a horrible, horrible hard job. I mean, I wouldn't even compare us with football player. I mean, they make still too little money, professional cyclists, but you know also. Cycling, you doesn't do it with your mind, you do it with your heart. At that count, for the cyclist, for the bus drivers, for the soigneurs, for the mechanic, you know, that's pure passion. Otherwise, you would simply run away. So uh, to answer your question, I think you would fit in all over. And uh, yes, you would attack back from kilometer zero. You, you would fit in more, better today yeah, with your racing style. <laughs> Actually, Brian, I, um, I noticed that and I really need to bring that up. I love you to pieces forever since that one interview where he asked you why nobody attacks in the Tour de France in the first days. And you, you went. At the stages like this was a headwind. Oh, nobody attacks. Only an idiot would attack. Audience folk, you said. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. I was laughing. I think actually Andreas Klöden found it. He sent it to me. And I was laughing. I still have a screenshot somewhere from it. That was the best comment ever. Only an idiot. Audience folk would attack on a deal. Oh, yes, so. No, I was. You remember? You remember we, we tried to get you with a HCC a few years? Yeah. Mm -hmm. With all five. Yeah, yeah. We really tried to get you. You know, we was T-Mobile and then we tried. Then we became HCC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk. I had a good talk with with. Uh, um... I, I we really tried to get you, but you didn't like to leave with Bianca, and uh, it was. Bit, I think it was a little bit emotional with be being with Bianca, you know, and HCC, whatever, not HCC, uh, Saxo Bank, whatever mm. it was called. CSC, CSC, CSC or Saxo Bank later, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was good with Bianca. I love working with him. 
And Bobby, but you was one year with a T-Mobile. Right? I was two years with T-Mobile in 2002 and was 2003. That? And um, that's true. And I didn't have one single race with you as far as no, our, our paths came. didn't really uh, cross. Um, that was a very interesting team. Like you said, it was not always yeah. funny. And um, was quite it German, was, eh? you know, German, I will admit. And the only other German I knew before then was, was Yenzi. And um, I went uh, very soon after that in 2004 um, back to, to Bjarna and Yenzi and those boys. But enough, uh, yeah, interesting times. At least I got to ride Pinarello bikes, which is always my favorite bike uh, ever since Alexi Graywall won the Olympics in 84. But, you know, you were, you were pro from 86 to 98-ish, I believe. You did, you know, 10 Grand Tours. Yes. You were, you know, super domestique. You could perform on the hardest races. But then all of a sudden, you switched to the driver's seat, to the director sportif, or for our listeners, we, we call it the DS seat. What, yes. what was that motivation to do that? And are there things that you said to yourself becoming a DS that you want to emulate from maybe one of your, your mentors or better DSs or that you didn't want to do in your career as a DS? Uh, I think you basically answered because uh, I was, when I quit, I had my own team, except Kat in Copenhagen was going on for a few years. Then I became national coach of Denmark, having a restaurant before for Eurosport. And suddenly, 2002, I had a phone call from Walter Godefrod. And he was, of course, uh, Godefrod. And you know, Godefrod, he, he wouldn't call just to see how it was doing. So I picked up the phone and said, wow, what happened now? It's going to be serious. And he said, yeah, you know, Woody Pivinas, he flicked me, like you said he would do. Because when I left T-Mobile in 98, whatever, uh, I said to Walter, Woody Pivinas, he's going to flick you sooner or later. Wait and see. No, no, no. I remember Godfrey say he's good with the computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we wait and see. So uh, four or five years after he called me, <laughs> Pivinas, he flicked me, like you said. Yeah, of course, it was nothing I made up, you know, like just, just to hurt Woody, yeah. But uh, you want his job? I say, no fuck, I don't want it. But uh, fly down, have a meeting, you know. I flew down, you know, with Valda again. And uh, because, you know, when you're getting that world of cycling, you sort of get addicted to it, you know. When you have it, you get it under your skin. And I had a good life in Denmark, you know. I just became daddy, you know, for the first time. I had my restaurant, good job with Eurosport, you know. It was, was everything good. But... Sheila me, I flew down to go to Ford and I said, I don't want to do it full time. I, I cannot do it again, like 200 days of traveling. He said, how many days you want? I said, 80 days? Okay, sign a contract. So I started with, with 80 days of traveling as a DS and, uh, and uh, I was proud because he asked me because T-Mobile was a, a telecom was a very big team. So I was quite flattered also to, to work with the team, of course, but it wasn't really my dream. And, uh, and to answer your question, and I realized working with, suddenly I became a DS for Sabel, uh, for Wesemann, for Jan Ulrich, with the guys where I was probably the domestic teammates, roommates a few years before. And suddenly I have to sit Yes or no. Then you have to think. And uh, then you try to take the best from your old sports directors and uh, and avoid the, the worst. Like the worst thing you would know was a sports director who couldn't make a decision. I remember a guy, I don't want to mention his name, coming down, you know, crosswind, uh, rain, you know, cobblestone said, okay, what are we going to do? We ride or we wait? <laughs> What do you think? I said, yeah, but you're the fucking sports director, you decide. So you realize, make the decision and believe in it. Say something. Uh, and you really have to really say, we, sometimes you can be quite hard when you say, just say, do what the fuck I'm telling you to do. Or I cut off your ears, you know, because I'm the boss. And, you know, 
You know, scientists, they're always confused. They're unsecure. So they need a clear order when they're stressed, you know. So, so to be polite, you would do them a really a favor. So they, they need a clear call what to do. And, uh, and I learned something. I remember when I worked with Tulip, with, uh, now we're back in 92, because you need respect of your DS. And if the writers don't respect you, you're over. It's done. And it's always sort of a power play, isn't it, with the DS? Because most writers always believe they're smarter than the DS. And uh, I remember uh, Willy Chauzard. Nobody knew him. Everybody forgot him. But Willy Chauzard, without knowing, I learned a lot. We did to the Luxembourg, 92. And uh, I was with Søren Lilleholt, you maybe remember. Uh, Andre van der Poel. And uh, good team. Last stage, break go, two minutes, you know, eight guys. Really, he says, start to chase, you know, both for the radios. Yeah, he didn't really write, you know, two minutes, two minutes, 30. He come up again with the car yelling, go faster, go faster. You think like, oh, old fool. You know, he was part-time sports director. And the third time he was coming up, taking down the window. He said, if you don't want to ride, I don't want to be here. He turned his car around and went home from the race back to Belgium. So suddenly we were stuck and bloody two of Belgium went out of sports director team car. He just went home. And since that day, I realized you need to respond because next time Billy said something, pull, then was pulling, trust me, the peloton. So the riders need consequences, consequences also, you know. So when you ask a rider once to do something, he don't do it, I would take him to his room I said, uh, clearly, well, I had Matteo Trentin, you know, or whatever, you know, in the past. Take him to the room and say, you know, today I told you, blah, blah, blah. And you didn't really do it. And I looked like a fool. I was sort of hum humiliated today because I asked you to pull and you didn't do it. So, like, basically, they could put in a monkey to be a DS instead of me because nobody respect me and sweetie hurt me. So now you can take your bloody suitcase, fly home. And then you call me when you come back and you listen. Okay, goodbye, you know. So next time you say something, they listen to you. But you can do it out of respect of the writers also, you know. Just explain why you do it, you know. But you just have to do it every three years and not home somebody. Then they're very nice. <laughs> and pulling when you ask them to. And it's like having kids. Your kids need consequences also, you know. And uh, just want some time with a finger and then they listen to you. And um, in your times at DS, what do you think of these training camps like we did with Bjarne Rees and Team CSC? Is that an idea you would follow up on it? Because they really seem to work for us to bound the team together, to get a better team spirit going. Is that an idea you liked or you thought, no, it's too much money and energy spent on it and the outcome is not big enough? I mean, I had it once because, you know, uh, 98... To, to be honest, yes, I think it was bullshit, you know, with the military, you know, I think it was good for bounding, you know, uh, but all everything like, you know, staying in the wood in the winter because uh, we had it, my first team, my last team, Jack and Jones, was became CSC by Saxo Bank, and they wanted, wanted us to do, do the same. I really refused to stay in the forest in November. I mean, in fact, November, my off season, would I sleep in the forest, in a tent? No fucking way. You know, I always did my training in snow, in rain. I did the bond strings. I did the cobblestones. I did everything. I was a good teammate. I was there on time. I did everything perfect, I think. I, I, I was good in every team. But November, I had to re recharge my batteries and I would not go on some team building bullshit in November. No fucking way. So I didn't do it and I had a sort of a fallout with the soldiers in the team and I was sad, you know. <laughs> so no, I don't like team building. I think for me the team building is on the bicycle. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton magazine, exclusive membership content, from values.com access 
all the premium content from the whole outside family, including yoga journal, backpacker, ski, outside magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Brian. Like you said, you know, we never worked, you know, directly together, but I've spoken to a lot of riders and you have such a respect with them and your responses and your comments so far make it very obvious on on why you are so popular. But I also feel that part of being a good DS is reading the room, right? Like some of the best quote unquote victories are not always the top step of the podium, right? Or the or the the GC. That's where something happened in the race that bonded the team together. Um, and and it was forever changed. Was there any, or could you share with us or our listeners any of those watershed or tipping point moments that you had like this? Um, because it seems like the team that you've been on, regardless of the riders that come in, are are bonded and do have that respect and do win a lot of races. But there always has to be that point where you you come together as a team or ex- establish your identity and your mentality. Do you do do you have any uh, examples of that? Yes, I I think because we are in a sport in cycling, you always have much more losers than wins, right? Because you sort of know it, you you, you learn to lose, and uh, but of course we're here for winning. I remember one stage. I don't know was it. Oh nine or ten or eight, whatever. Maybe we said we started in uh, Rotterdam, and the stage was down to uh, Antwerp. And we have like when we do with New Zealand the the piece with crosswind at the gasoline station with fifty three kilometers to go. So we knew with uh, actually that was later because in two thousand and because that was quick step anyway you stopped. But anyway, but we knew where we would go with the crosswind, just full pull, full speed ahead. So uh, with 53 kilometers to go, the bunch blew in pieces. I think probably 20 guys in the first group. I believe it was probably six uh, quick step riders. And uh, so it was looking perfect. And uh, we could not lose it. Uh, Tony Martin, normally Tony would take the yellow jersey. And Cavendish could not lose the sprint. He was there with uh, Renshaw. And, uh, but everything like it, everything went wrong. The last 150 meters. Tony did the lead out. Stopped pedaling, losing four seconds. To Cancelar, losing the yellow jersey. What Cav and Renshaw did, I still don't know till the day of today. But for sure, Cav, he was beaten by Greibel, and we look like idiots. I mean, we just came from Holland into Belgium, and quick step into Belgium, and we screwed big time. It couldn't be any worse. I mean, I was so angry, I, I didn't, I couldn't talk. You know, when you're angry, don't say a word. You know, getting in the car, I would, I could hear all the yelling from the boss, of course, as he stay away from the boss, you know, the riders were fighting, you know, like, and they, Getting getting to uh, getting to the hotel. We stayed in Antwerp, and uh, I took a run around Antwerp where I used to live. And uh, I spoke to some years, you know, and you know some writers was crying, you know, and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't go to the internet on the Belgian media where they wrote about you, you know, because it was not too flattering if you know what I'm saying. And uh, say, fuck, I was still like so. After a while, I go to the like 
8.30, you know, I took the France going to the dinner table. And uh, you saw the writers, you know, honestly, if it was rabbits at the dinner table, you know, these, they would hang down here, you know, like. And, you know, I entered the restaurant and, you know, like a psychologist would say, when you enter a room, people start to talk, stop to talk. It's not a good sign. So I walk in, everything quiet. I said, here we go. So, but honestly, it was so bad. We screwed like nobody did before. So going to writers saying, guys, you know, what happened today was the worst shit I saw in my life. It's for the history books. Nobody done such a fuck up before. So uh, we have to celebrate it. We have a good glass of we have a very good glass of wine now, and then we say cheers. But you promised me, go to the internet, read what they write about you, and tomorrow we fought them, you know. And then you create a very strong unit because writers say, no, you don't have to yell at them. They, they just know we screw it. And, and then you will realize when the whole world of cycling is against, against you, you know, I mean, and then you really stick together afterwards because start yelling and do something, they know. They know we screw it, you don't have to mention it. And then I think you have to support the writers. And especially a good team, when they, when, when they are in trouble, I can see with my boss, Patrick Lefebvre, our previous boss, he always supports his team when it's very, very bad. He always supports the team, he stands up for the team. And then I start uh, that sort of team building also. But I remember that day uh, when really, we have a glass of wine. Normally we have no alcohol in the team. A few glasses of wine, sitting with the writers, talk about what happened, you know, and just like the feeling, okay, the right bad, bad about us, wait and see, we're gonna come back, you know. It took a few days, but then Tony, he won the States with the cobblestone, Robert States, and took the yellow jersey, you know, so rest is history. But that was one of the best memories I had, you know, when you turn something very, very bad into something very good. So now that you say um, your uh, ex-boss Patrick Lefebvre, you want to share with us what happens next in your life then? Oh yes, uh, for sure. Because uh, we have something, uh, the Flames have something called Svartegard, the big hole, the big black hole. You know, you do something for 20 years, for 30 years, you stop and your whole life get through a little hole, you know, you squeeze it in, you know, you're losing your identity, you know, no more phone calls, no more emails. I guess it's not always easy. If you're a writer, it can be difficult, I think, for some writers and uh, even at DS. So uh, already in 2018, I start to plan it a bit with, uh, I said to Lefebvre, I mean, I'm getting close to 60. When you're getting 60, you cannot say anymore, okay, I do that next year or in two years. When you're 60, you do it now, you know. Now you move on if you want to go. Uh, my plan is to go uh, across US on a, on a motorbike, whatever, see some Formula One racing, you know, go on holiday with my family and I would have had the time, you know. Now it's now when you get 60. So back in 2018, I said to the I said, you know, I'm gonna do a part-time, maximum 50 days, I'm gonna quit now. So my boss, Lefebvre, he let me do really a smaller program to adapt to the civil life. Back in 2013, I went into the city council in, Co in Frederiksberg of Copenhagen. So uh, I've been in politics for, for nine years. That's a new world to be in politics, of course, but you haven't done it before, politician. It takes some time. I work, I still have a, a deal with Eurosport. I sort of can, I think, I think you did the same, you sort of decide two days. So I have politics, I have Eurosport, and uh, to this morning, I have a very good deal to be writer's agent with my good, one of my old writers, Johanna Lauka, a Finnish agent. So I had a, a deal to work with him. I, my plan was six, seven years to work him, but this morning, unfortunately, I can tell you, now it's official, uh, Eurosport said you cannot work for Eurosport and be writer's agents. You have to choose. So now I have to choose the next days if I'm going to quit Eurosport or the writer's agency. And, uh, well, you know, life is full of choices. So 
I'll think about it. Wow, we got a little scoop on uh, on what you're doing next. That uh... I, I was really I was really surprised because I had a meet, I should have a meeting with the boss of Eurosport this morning, uh, and I thought like ah, oh, think some. See, he thought he would say something nice. He said no. Well, they're now owned by Warner Brothers, and said you can't like you cannot be writer's agent and uh, and work for for Eurosport at the same time. So you have to choose. So, uh, but I have one way to do it. Wow! Wow! Okay. Well, um, you know, obviously you've been on some amazing teams that won an exorbitant amount of races every single year, and you did that for quite a while. Are there any, like, do you have like a top three or top five list of those special moments? And more directly, or a second part of this question is, I know that you're very close to Cav. Um, how much more do you ha- think he has left in the tank? And do you think he'll be able to break Eddie Merckx's all-time stage-winning record in the Tour de France? I think he would break it, yes. I think. Let's say he go, I don't know, it's official. I think I heard something. He go into a Pinot's team, Stade de Paris, B&B hosts, whatever. Uh, if he's like that, I think it makes sense. Imagine... A team sponsored by Paris, you're winning the last days in Champs-Élysées, beat Eddie Merckx's record, that would be a nice story. Would be good for cycling, wouldn't it? Uh, so I think he beat it next to that. I know Cavs' ambition is like uh, doing an Olympic medal, 24 is in Paris. Imagine he could win the Olympic, now say Madison. Uh, that's, I think, what he needs, you know, if, if Cav could beat it makes record, Olympic gold, then he'd probably be a member of the British Empire, call himself Sir, Sir Cavendish. I think that's his big goals. And you know, Cap, when you have a goal, most of the time he make it, you know. And uh, so uh, I think he would be good for the seniors. I think he would be good. But, uh, but I think I was always very lucky, to be honest. Uh, I'm very happy. I work with some of the best writers of the world. You know, that was really a big, big honor when I'm looking back. I'm busy to make a book about it, about the best writer, not the best, because everybody was good, you know. But all writers is, is, is different, you know. I still have quite a lot of contact even with the old writers, you know. I work with like 5, 10, 15 years ago. I'm still contact. You guys know Olaf Ludwig, uh, uh, Mario Koma. Udo Bulls, uh, the Belgian writers, Ludwig Weinans, and uh, for the writers I work with, I mean, uh, Kwiatkowski, it's such an amazing guy. He's now with Ineos, such a good guy, he was world champion. I just love that kid. Uh, I work with Tony Martin, you guys know Tony Martin, I just, I just love him. Philip Gilbert, he just quit. I mean, Gilbert, I mean, when he was with Quickstep, he was probably 36, but he was motivated like a junior. I mean, Paris Nice, you know, he have a, have, probably have a bank account like that, Phil, but he still raced like a junior in the snow, no arm warmers, motivated, you know, he always thought he could win. So I, I, I really worked with some amazing writers, you know, Matteo Trenzin, you know, he's still like, he won a few stages in the tour, but I mean, I was blessed, you know, I was really, I really loved all the writers I was working with, every single one. So, where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? In a little rocking chair on your terrace of your house or still somehow involved with cycling? Keep in mind, you just turned uh, 60, so 10 years from now. Yeah, but that I said, now you, you, because in life I always, I always look, you were so younger, you have to look five years ahead, right? You always look five, what, where I want to be in five years, and you start to prepare, you know, you prepare financially, you know, like uh, uh, when you're a cyclist, uh, what do you want to win, how which team you want to be in, and uh, with politics. So the moment now, I always ask myself, 10 years now, will I still be in politics? I cannot decide my on my own, because every time, every four years, we have election. So uh, 
But would it really go for a bigger job in politics? I have my doubt. It's very demanding. It's very hard. It's a lot of meeting, you know, you're a lot in the media, and it's not always fun. So in 10 years time, I suppose, uh, I still stay here in Copenhagen. I have my motorbike. I work part-time with Eurosport. And uh, oh, I have my rights agency. I want to build up if I choose that. But now that I have to decide uh, the next week what I'm going to do. But first of all, I'm going to ride my bike four times a week and be in good good shape. And uh, I probably, so when people see me, I hope they're going to think, ah, here's riding Brian Holm. He looked like he's 30. Probably what they're really going to say, they'll say, here's Brian Holm, the fucking idiot. He's thinking 30 years old, but he's 70. <laughs> well, <laughs> but if if I can ride my bicycle when I'm 70, three, four times a week, then I'm a happy man because then my health is good and then the rest doesn't really matter. Well, I tell you one thing. you You have definitely made your mark in this sport and you just named a few of the riders but i know that you touched so many many more in in a positive way with your positive attitude with your management style with your honesty with your candor so i just want to thank you for everything that you've done for the sport i know you're going to continue to do great things in the sport but um thank you for that And thank you for coming on Bobby and Jens. It's been an absolute honor to kind of get you right as you're turning the page into a new chapter in your life. And we just wish you the best of luck moving forward as well. But first of all, thank you for everything that you've done in the in the Peloton. Thanks for, for calling me, guys. It was an honor to be on your podcast. I was proud when I saw the mail. Thank you. It was fantastic to catch up and see you again. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Brian for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a VeloNews production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.